we go through a lot of ups and downs in life. Um, emotionally, we go up and down, especially when there's turbulence. We go up and down, quite literally. There's a lot of jarring. Um, our status, how we feel about ourselves or how we're accomplishing things. This has been a good week. This has been a bad week. And these things can turn as radically as a roller coaster ride. And we up here on the mountain know exactly what it's like to live an up and down life because many of us make at least one trip down the hill once a week. And we go down and we come up. We go down and we come up. Some people commute every day down and up, down and up. We know what it's like to live up and down. And that's not fun to live that way in the Christian life. Now, did you know? And I confirm this from my observation and my dad's observation in his car when he lived here, that from, uh, what is it, 40th and Waterman up to this spot, so the Starbucks down at the bottom of the hill to this spot, it's 15 miles, and a car that normally gets 30 miles to the gallon on the highway gets 10 to 15 coming up the hill. Or it depends on who's driving. That's absolutely true. And not to mention wear and tear on the tires and all that stuff. But it takes, in other words, twice as much energy to come up. And it takes twice as much brake usage to go down. In other words, an up and down life takes a lot of energy. It takes more out of us. And the ideal way to live is to find some sort of... look. We can't help that life is going to take us through things that are on the upside and things that are on the downside, but we can find a way to be unmoved in the midst of it. We can say, I'm riding high on the trough right now, or high on the wave right now, but I'm not feeling like this is going to be the end of the world if it ends. And I'm at the bottom of the trough right now, but I found a happy middle zone where I flux a little bit. I'm unmoved by the seasons, by the moods, by the changes, by the constant what's going on around me. That's the ideal place is to live in unmoved, no more ups and downs. And I think we can find some guidance here in Psalm 15. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about where the psalm fits in the book, because this is getting cool. And if if, it, if I'm getting too nerdy, you can tune me on, I'll, I'll bring you back when I'm less nerdy. But Psalm 15, start with the title, A Psalm of David, verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So... Who has access? Who's allowed up? The answer in verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. 
So Psalm chapters 1 and 2 were our opening psalms. They tell us what this is about. It's about the person who prays through scripture becomes like the Edenic tree planted by rivers of water. Psalm 2, it's about God's king, his Messiah, whom he's appointed over all the ruthless nations and he will inherit the earth. That's how the Psalter opens. There is a word from God and there is a king of God and the two come together to lead us back to the Edenic life that we had been cast out of. Then Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, so the first five after that, are David in flight, on the run, because Absalom has taken the throne from him. His son has taken the throne. Psalm 8, he is what we've been calling wonderwhelmed with God in the creation. He gets a breather. Then the next five, 9 and 10 was the same psalm. 11, 12, 13, 14. Those five were David coping with ungodliness all around him. So here's what we have. We have David on the run for five, David coping with the godless around him for five, and at the center, it's like a sandwich, at the center is his wonderwhelmed experience with looking at God in the heavens and realizing that God has given him a place in his kingdom. That's the center. There's a sandwich to open up the Psalms. Well, in Psalm 15, we close that sandwich. That one's done. It was a great appetizer because now here comes the double decker. There's another sandwich coming. Same sort of a pattern. There's a theme. There's the meat. And then there's a theme. So this is what we're going to see. Okay. Psalm 15 is as you just read with me, it's an entry psalm. It's a who can live with God on his mountain. It's an entry psalm. Or in other words, an ascension psalm. It's about going up to God. Psalm 16 will be about comfort. And we see the resurrection as a theme. We'll do that next week. 17, he's complaining because he's in pain. 18, the Messiah. Now, Messiah is lowercase m, okay? Um, there are, there's, there's the Messiahs. Those were God's appointed kings over Israel. And then there's the Messiah with a capital M, and that is his king over all the kings, the son of God, Jesus Christ. So the Psalms deal a lot with David because he was a lowercase Messiah. But they're talking about that Messiah because they're looking forward to this end time, never going to fail Messiah who will be like David without any of the failures and without death. And in chapter 18, we see David being treated as that messianic figure who receives deliverance from God. Okay. Okay. So that's 15, 16, 17, 18. Now, chapter 20 and 21, they're going to deal with the same theme. The Messiah being delivered by God in battle. So 20 and 21 deal with deliverance. So remember, it's a sandwich, okay? So we're going to mirror. Uh, imagine like people do hamburgers differently. So they'll do the bun, um, lettuce, tomato, onion, meat, avocado, bacon. That's a loaded burger, by the way. Pineapple and then bun. <laughs> um, that 
Okay, that's lopsided though. So here, no one does a burger this way, but this is how you imagine it, okay? When we're dealing with a sandwich literary structure in the Bible, you think bun, bun, lettuce, lettuce, onion, onion, and meat in the middle. So that it's from the meat, it's mirrored on both ends. So this is what we're going to see. 20 and 21 are mirroring chapter 18. They are the Messiah being delivered out of battle by God. Psalm 22 is mirroring Psalm 17. It's a psalm of pain, a psalm of, God, help me, I need your help. Psalm 23 is going to mirror Psalm 16. It is also a psalm of comfort. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But it's also ha- it also has a theme of resurrection, which is often overlooked in this psalm, which we will look at. Um, and then Psalm 24 mirrors tonight's psalm. Look at Psalm 24 with me, just so you can see it. The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And then here's the question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Now the list is a little more condensed. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Just like, very much like our psalm tonight. But this one brings it to a nice close. It's the the great last bite of the burger. You want everything just right for that last bite. You don't want just just bun left or just a big slimy slice of tomato you want all of it in that last bite and this one brings it all together 24 verse 7 lift up your heads O gates imagine jerusalem the gates be lifted up O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in who is this king of glory the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle lift up your heads O gates and lift them up O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So it ends with this. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is literally marching into the city. It's this glorious hope. And here, therefore, um, we have a sandwich of the kingdom of God coming in our midst. It's a beautiful set of psalms. Jesus taught us to pray, and the psalms are praying this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so these psalms are prayers. Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When we need a month from the elections, we need an emphasis on the kingdom we belong to. We're going to be good citizens of this nation, but we recognize that we are part-time citizens of this nation. And we are full-time citizens of a different kingdom. And we want to see the fulfillment of God's work in our midst. And so this psalm will put us focusing on the kingdom and the king. And you notice I missed the meat. I didn't miss it. I just skipped it on purpose. What is the very center of this sandwich we'll be doing for the next few weeks? It's Psalm 19. So right in between 18, 20, and 21, 
Those are the ones where the Messiah is being delivered by God out of danger, out of battle. Right in the middle of that is Psalm 19. And we're not going to read it now, but it is the psalm about the law of God, the word of God. And it is the, it is the second of three psalms in the psalms that directly praise the word of God. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's word day and night. He shall be like the tree, like the Edenic tree planted by the rivers of water. Psalm 19 and mush, smush them together. Psalm 119 is the third one where it's an entire long psalm, every verse about the word of God. So what we're going to see is our, our, through everything we go through, through the comforts and through the pain and through the God help me and deliver me out of this, through all of these, there is a center and it is the word of God that will keep us unmoved. And so this Psalm 15 now tonight is going to set us up. Here we go. Enter on in. It's time to go into this kingdom. It's time to ascend this mountain. It's time to dwell with this king and say, this is where I want to dwell. On his mountain. Okay. Now, when did David write? By the way, I'm done being a nerd, so you can come back if you're into Psalm 15. When did David write Psalm 15? It doesn't tell us, but there's a guess, and a pretty good guess, that 15 and 24 were written when he tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant all from Shiloh, where it was, all the way to Jerusalem, where David had established the royal headquarters. He See, David understood that as God's king, as Messiah, he needed the king to be there with him. David wasn't the king. He was a king. God was the king. David was simply the human instrument. He wanted the Ark of the Covenant there with him to be a symbol to the people I rule on God's behalf, not in place of him, underneath him. And so David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It's 2 Samuel chapter 6. But David had a lot more time to think about it than he thought he would. Because on the way, apparently, they came up in an unworthy manner. And Uzzah tries to reach out and stabilize the the uh, ark as it's being pulled by oxen on a cart. It's about to tip over. I can imagine they're very close to Jerusalem. Maybe they're kind of on the incline. They're on the ascent. It's a little precarious. He's like watching it the whole time. He's like, oh no, I told David we need to fill in that pothole, but you know. And then um he reaches out to stabilize it and boom, he's zapped dead. And the whole party, the whole celebration, the God's going to be in our kingdom comes to a halt and they park the ark right there at this guy named i believe or if you remember it's obed obed's a uh, house for three months david has three months to think about this and it's probably in these three months that he writes these two prayers psalm 15 and 24 god who who can stand before you who can come up here but then david learns we did it wrong we did it in an unworthy manner we were trying to pull God up the mountain. God wanted no ox cart. 
He wanted the priests, the Levites, to carry the ark on their shoulders to let him be lifted up, not pulled like a toy, but to be lifted up in the sight of all people. The sacred priests, the set-apart ones for the job, carrying it on up. And every six steps, they stop to sacrifice an animal. They were definitely seeking to be of upright heart as they brought the ark up. Okay. Now, here's the problem. We read this list and we think, what, does God have bouncers? Is God standing there going, imagine if we did this too. The long line as you come in. All right, we got a questionnaire for you. Have you walked blamelessly and done what's right this week? Uh Uh-huh, sure you have. Uh, Have you spoken truth in your heart? By the way, that just means sincerely. In your heart means you're not speaking out of two hearts. You might remember cardio dissonance from a couple weeks ago. This means you're speaking out of one heart. You mean what you say. Okay, okay. Have you, uh, have you slandered anyone with your tongue? And you start to blanch. (gasps) Are they my friends on Facebook or not? I don't think so. I'll lie. No, I haven't. Um, and you can imagine, what if we made this an entrance exam? Hmm. None of us would be very good at this every week. We have ups and downs. And you come up the hill, oh, and then you go back down because you weren't worthy this week. It's actually, um, yeah, so that, (laughs) it could lead us to ask, does God have bouncers? Is God, is God right now with us saying, you know, I'm really sorry. I wanted to bless you this week. I'm glad you came to church, but honestly, you need to get your act together. You need to go and check off this list. And by the way, the list, um, it, it, the lines come out a little bit differently depending on the translation, but a, a few commentators said that it appears there are 10 qualities here that it's being, that's asking for from worshipers. 10 qualities. And there's no, coincidence that that's meant to parallel the Ten Commandments. These are not the Ten Commandments. But the idea is that these are specific scenarios that come out of the law of God. Are you following God's law or are you not? Now, if we look at the Ten Commandments, or if we look at this list of what God wants as the staircase to climb to be with him, you're in trouble. And your spiritual life, your walk with God, and your emotional stability will go up and down every given day. I'm doing great. I got to verse five and a half, and I have been able to say, yep, check, check. And then, nope, you were not generous. You were selfish. And down you go. This is not meant to be like that. This is not an exam. It's not a test. It's not a staircase. I'm on stair eight. Where are you? But I've been there for three weeks, okay? You've only been on stair nine for today. That's not what's going on here. Now, the question about accessing God, being worthy, and God having bouncers is actually a legitimate question. Because when you go back to Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, humanity was meant to have free access to God. And the tree of life was there to give them his life, to give him his fruit. But when Adam and Eve sinned, 
and were removed from the garden, we read at the very end of Genesis 3 that God placed a cherubim to guard the tree of life, lest man come back to it. Who's worthy to eat from the tree of life? Adam and Eve fail. They weren't worthy. There's no access. There hadn't been access for a long time. Then God calls a people, almost like making a new Adam and Eve. He threw Abraham and Sarah, make a new nation. And this nation will be the people who have access to this God. And so he sets up his presence in their midst, in the tabernacle. Moses sets it up. And there, um, we could do a, uh, we could do a much longer study on how the tabernacle actually has some specific textual parallels to the Garden of Eden. And it was meant to be a little miniature oasis in the midst of a sinful people. Here it is, God with man, and they can have access to him again to a degree. Because what was blocking the Holy of Holies? The Holy of Holies was where God's throne on earth was. It was where it would be like the tree of life where you come and you have direct access to God. What was blocking that Holy of Holies? It was a big veil woven with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and embroidered into the veil was cherubim. Just like the blocking of the tree of life, God had cherubim blocking full access to him. And as an added measure... On the Ark of the Covenant itself, where God's very throne was, guarding the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim. The cherubim were the bouncers at one time. Who's worthy to come and have access to the the God of life, the tree of life, our living creator? And the cherubim stand there and say, no one, except that one day, the high priest on the day of atonement with the right sacrifices. That's it. No one. And then we come to the New Testament and John chapter one, verse 14 tells us that the word became flesh. Jesus, that's John's great word name for Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek is literally that he tabernacled among us. And the question in Psalm 15 is, who shall sojourn in your tent? This is the Hebrew word for the tabernacle. Who shall sojourn in your tabernacle? The answer has been given to us in Christ. No one. No one can come up this mountain. And it's going to take you way too much up and down expenditure of your life. You'll never be satisfied. You'll always be moved. You'll always be on the, your, your condition will always be on the whim of how you were that day. No one's worthy to come up. But what the New Testament says is that God came out of the tent. He came down the mountain and tented with us. We can't get up there, but he brought it down to us. So who shall dwell in your tent? Now the answer is, in Christ we shall. In Christ we may. 
And we see hints like this. Not only does John just say that, but we see hints in Jesus's life. Remember Mark 2, when Jesus is teaching in the house and a paralytic is brought by his four friends? Wow, that's interesting. I just made this connection with the four Levites carrying the ark and the four friends carrying the paralytics. I don't know if there's any connection there, but it's interesting. I just say it out loud. I hit my head. I'm like, oh, cool. I got to say that. Um, they're carrying him to Christ and they can't get in. It's blocked. It's packed. And so what they do is they come through the roof and they lower him. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And do you remember the Pharisees say, what? Blasphemy. No one can forgive sins but God. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. What Jesus is doing is he's angering the religious establishment by saying access to forgiveness is not over there in that building with the right requirements. It's not checking off the Psalm 15 list. That's not how you get access to forgiveness. Access to forgiveness is right here. That's all you got. You got to come to me. And so the dwelling place has come down to us and it found the paralytic and it gave him unbidden uh, forgiveness. Hey, you're with me. I'm forgiving you. Um, you may remember right after that, Jesus, um, he, he calls Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. And Matthew invites Jesus over with all his friends. And I mean, goodness, the guy has a rough crowd of friends because he was on the lower end of the establishment. Um, and so Jesus is with a pretty rugged crowd eating at their table. And what do the Pharisees do when they look in the windows? Because they wouldn't dare enter, right? <laughs> they look in and say, hey, why is he eating with sinners? And the answer to that is, well, right, God eats with sinners. Think about that. The Pharisees know who eats with sinners. God eats with sinners. Sinners go to the temple and they give them his offering. And part of the system of the offerings was you would get a piece of meat and the rest would go to God and some to the priest. It was a table fellowship. Sinners and God. Jesus, sinners and God eating together. Right there. There's nowhere to go because it has come to us. Then we have in Matthew chapter... Actually, now I want you guys to start turning your Bible now. That'd be great. Matthew chapter 27... Matthew's the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, um, Matthew 27, and we, we tune in at verse 51. So Jesus, the presence of God come down the mountain to dwell with us is crucified. And we're actually going to see in this sandwich of Psalms we're doing, we're going to see the crucifixion Psalm, right? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Jesus is crucified. And so in Matthew 27, 51, here's the aftermath of his death. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? Because God comes down to us. And when he comes down to us, that veil, that curtain threaded with scarlet, blue, and, and, uh, purple, that 
that veil with the cherubim embroidered onto it is ripped up. There are no more bouncers, is what his death is saying. It's done. I have come down to you. We're not asking who's worthy to come up anymore. I've come down to you. So that veil is torn. And what would you see? What would be, what would happen if that's open? There's, there's two ways to look at this. One is everyone can now walk on in access to God. One way to look at it. Second way to look at it is, but God is no longer confined to a religious system. God can now wander and bring his holy of holies, tree of life presence to every corner of the globe. Is that true? Go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. So yeah, we can go in, but it also means that God is moving and he's out. He's no longer in a sect or a denomination or a, 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 spe- a special liturgy. He's now moving in the world. And in John 20, we see this amazing scene. So remember how the, the veil had the cherubim guarding access to God, but then the, the Ark of the Covenant itself, the box with the seat on top and the two cherubim on the head and the foot guarding it. Uh, so the cherubim were guarding the, the veil, which is now torn, but they're also guarding the Ark of the Covenant. Well, in John 20, Jesus has died, but he just was raised from the dead. And Mary goes to look. It's John 20, verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. What is she seeing? When you go into the tomb, there would be a table on which you would lay the body. And there it would be left to rot for a year. And then after a year, there'd be nothing but bones left. And you would come in, gather the bones, put them in a box and put it up on a shelf to be with your your ancestors. Jesus is on a table. And there are two angels at the head and the foot. This looks like the Ark of the Covenant. And it is the king on the throne in between them. Except that the king is not there. Right? He's been raised. And so the Holy of Holies is not in the temple anymore. The Ark of the Covenant is not in the temple. It's it's in a tomb. But it's not just in a tomb because the King of Glory has come off of that throne and he's now walking about and he's ascended to the right hand of God. He's at a better and higher throne, a throne that's permeating all of the universe. He has come down to us to make a way, and now he sits on his throne. Um, Go now to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. It's to the right. So you got John, Acts, Romans. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, That is Paul summarizing all of Romans up to that point. Justified by faith. What is he saying? He's saying that we now have standing with God. 
not by my climbing, not by my accomplishments, not by my race, but by trust in Christ, I have now been given standing or justified, never sinned. I'm seen as worthy. So therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. There's no more veil. There's no more cherubim. There's no, don't, don't think of naked little cute butts. Like, not that cherubim. These are probably really serious. No one comes to the holy. Very serious cherubim. They're gone. Christ has said, no more of that. You come through me. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You don't climb up the mountain. You don't have to look at it and say, how do we scale that? Well, if we get the right ropes and we need some climbing shoes and I'll valet you and um, you spot me and you put the hooks in the right place and then we got to be careful of the avalanche situation over there. There's none of that. Christ says, look, I have scaled the mountain. I have come down to you. I've gone back up. I have made a way. Walk my way. That's how you get there. And so in him, through him, we have, I love that word. We have access. We have access to the tree of life. We have access to the holy of holies. We have what this psalm is wondering about. We have access through Christ. And then Hebrews, toward the very end of the Bible, Hebrews, James, Peter. So find Hebrews. Chapter 10, Hebrews 10. Hebrews itself has a ton to say on all of this, but this verse, this verse shows us the death of Jesus and the access we have because of that death. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, those holy places are the ones guarded by cherubim at one time. Since we have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain. Remember when he died, it said the veil was torn, the curtain was torn. Well, now Hebrew says, look, he provided a way for us through the, he opened a way for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. The ripping open of Jesus was the ripping open of access to God. We now have access. He has come down the mountain. And he suffered at our hands so that we can have access. So in light of this, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Who can come, O Lord? And then this list in Psalm 15. Yeah, up and down on that thing all the time. But let us draw near with a heart full of assurance of faith because we've been sprinkled clean. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. We've been justified, Romans said. Christ has made a way so that we are worthy. Now, so in Psalm 15, we have the option of going up and down this hill, this mountain. Or we have the option of standing in Christ and being unmoved. He who does these things, end of the psalm, he who does these things shall never be moved. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how I live. Because in Christ I have access. Here's the thing. If we choose to ignore the path Christ has put before us, you're not walking the way. You're not going to enter through him. I cannot say I'm entering through Christ while I cheat my neighbor and take bribes and love and praise the vile person and despise the one who fears the Lord. I do not, ha- I'm not utilizing access. That's walking the other direction. He who does these things shall never be moved. If we recognize that in Christ, that as we press into Christ, we will fulfill these things, we will never be moved. Here's the thing. If these are 10 qualities in Psalm 15, it's like the 10 commandments. The 10 commandments is the, is Israel's law and all the other 613 laws all fall under the 10 commandments. They're all scenarios for these 10 and how they work out. Well, Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, I believe. Yeah, Matthew 22. He was asked, Hey, so, uh, which is the greatest of all the laws? And Jesus is like, that's really easy. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other, there's a second that's a lot like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. So how do we do this? We love God with all we are. And if we love God with all we are, we're going to love our neighbor with all we are. Sometimes we try to get this the other way. We try to impress God. We try to do this list. We try to love our neighbor. And we go up and down. Or... We can try to love God and we will never be moved. Because here's the thing, guys. The psalm is not asking. The psalm is not asking for people to visit. Notice that? Who shall visit in your tent? Sojourn is visit. But then it says, who shall dwell on your holy hill? There's a progression. We don't want to be the sojourner. We don't want to be the visitor. People who climb the hill come back down. You have to. You can't live on a mountain all year. We we know that. We can't live up here all month long. We have to get down there at some point. Unless you like your limited options. You can't live up. You're going to be up and down all the time if you're visiting. We want people who dwell. We want people who dwell. That's what we're looking for. So, here's the thing. To be unmoved, we want to dwell in the dwelling place of God. 
you have the option of hiking up the mountain or you have the option of praying in the mountain, which is a far better option. I can hike up it. I get all tired, exasperated, and upset that Wayne's holding me back because he's still in therapy. And he's just right here. So perfect. Wayne's going to be way back there next week. Um, I can, we, we can do that. Um, or we can just say, well, you know what? God's brought it down to us. Let's pray it in. And here, here it is. When we pray in the dwelling place of God, Prayer, here's, we think sometimes, oh, prayer, it's so passive though. I need to go do this. I need to go finish this. I need to go accomplish this. But prayer is not passive. Prayer is praying in the presence of God. It's bringing this mountain we think we're supposed to conquer and saying, no, Christ has brought it down. He's conquered it. Prayer is bringing it into our lives. Prayer is not passive. It's massive. This is enlarging. Prayer says, look, you're thinking too small. You're thinking like a mere mortal. You need to think like a son or daughter of the king. Pray in the mountain. It's not about trying harder. It's not about I've had a bad week or a good week. It's about prayer. It's about the kind of prayer that is allowing yourself to absorb the presence of God, to loving him with all of your focus, all of your attention, all of your ambition, all of the things you value, heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, right? It's about loving him with all of this, receiving him with all of this, so that now the mountain itself, uh, walking blamelessly, doing its right, speaking truth, not gathering interest, not taking advantage of people, not... Uh, doing evil against your neighbor, all these things are now inside me. You see how that works? When we pray God into us, we pray the entire list into us. It's not a checklist. It's not a laundry list. It's not a, I get overwhelmed in grocery stores. I go around, yeah. I get my exercise in for sure, but um, it's not about, oh, oh, that's on the other eye. I got to check that box. And it's not like that with God. That's up and down. It's about being unmoved because there's nothing to climb up and down anymore. It's about bringing, and here's the, here's where the metaphor becomes probably more what the psalm wants us to see. The mountain is unmovable. And when the mountain, when Christ's kingdom is prayed into us, we are as unmovable as a mountain. Guess what? I don't have a clue what's going to happen in November, and I've read a lot of really strange scenarios. But I know that this mountain, literal mountain, isn't going to be moved by it. And if I pray the mountain of Christ's kingship and presence into my life, I will be completely and utterly unmoved by everything. That's what the psalm promises. But see... The difference is some people want to hike up the mountain. Other people want to pray in the mountain. And it's the latter, the ones that recognize in Christ is my access. I want to pray it into my life. They are the ones who will never be moved. And if you left Hebrews, I'm sorry, but I'm going to read you Hebrews 12. So you can really see this mountain theme. Um, Hebrews 12, 26 says this. 
At that time, God's voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, Hebrews says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, there's going to be a great shakeup where everything that is not as unmovable as a mountain will be completely toppled over. And we'll know, yep, those things are not of the kingdom of God. Only the things that remain through the shakeup are built of the kingdom of God. Then Hebrews says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Wow. God has given us a kingdom. I forgot to read the verses before that, but it's talking about Mount Sinai, actually. And then it says, better than Mount Sinai is Mount Zion. And that's the kingdom that will never be shaken. Isaiah chapter 2, Micah, is it chapter 5? They're the same verse. They say, um, all the nations are going to come to Zion and say, hey, let's go learn the way of the Lord. We'll beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. Uh, we're going to learn the way of war no more so that we can learn the way of God instead. It will be the center of the earth, this mountain we can pray in. And so, friends, I don't want us, I don't want us to um, live outside Eden anymore. Because that's your choice. There's no more cherubim guarding the tree of life. And that's what Psalm chapter 1 opened up with. The Psalter opens with, yep, there's the way of the wicked. They're not blessed. Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God and on his word. Um, he meditates day and night. It doesn't say meditate twice. I misquoted that somewhere. So his delight, that was it. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. Then what is he? He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does. He prospers, but the wicked are not so they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Trees unmoved, chaff moved. The Psalms are inviting us to the tree again. They're inviting us to Eden and it's saying there's a way. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. We're going to pray this in. We're going to become unmoved. This is our access to the life that was once barred and the word of God. Psalm 19, it's going to be the very center of the sandwich, which we've only begun. So we got through the bun. I'm going to get into the next layer next week in chapter 16. We're going to see the comfort of God and the comfort well, to tip the hat, it's uh, or to tip the pitch, it's resurrection. So look forward to that next week. We got a sandwich to eat through, but we're going to be unmoved because we belong to an unshakable kingdom. And brothers and sisters, I desperately pray and want us to be people who will wake up on November 4th, although it's doubtful we'll know who wins the presidency by November 4th, but that who wake up whenever it's declared unmoved by who wins, unmoved by 
what the Supreme Court does, unmoved by the direction of our universities or the secularization of our nation. Yeah, these are important things. I get it. But let's not be moved by that. Let's be moved by Christ. And let's pray in the unshakable, unmovable mountain and kingdom and access and presence that Christ provides. We have access to the tree of life. Let's not eat from any other tree. You know how that goes. Lord, we do pray that we would not cease 